If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. On today's episode, we're discussing meritocracy and social models of success. Is sorting people by merit dangerous? And should we be championing an alternative model, one more attentive to the role of humility, solidarity and luck. This week, we're joined by renowned philosopher Michael Sandel, who exposes the hubris a meritocracy generates among the winners and the harsh judgment it imposes on those left behind. Those who've landed on top have come to believe that their success is their own doing, the measure of their merit. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to our host for this week, Jesse Norman. It's my absolute delight and pleasure to uh, have the chance to talk with Michael Sandel about his new book, The Tyranny of Merit. So, Michael, let's just start, if I may, with uh, just the title, The Tyranny of Merit. Can you give us a, a sense of the, the overall thrust of the book? Yes, merit on the face of it seems a good thing. Who could be against giving people jobs or assigning social roles on the basis of merit? And yet, in our time, so it seems to me, Jesse, merit has, has become a tyranny especially when the way we define merit is largely based on the money people make, as if that were a true measure of their contribution to the common good. The basic idea of the book is this, for decades, the divide between winners and losers has been deepening. It's been poisoning our politics, driving us apart. The problem is partly the deepening inequality of income and wealth that has come about as a result of globalization. But it's not only that. It has also to do with the changing attitudes toward success and failure that have come with it. Those who've landed on top have come to believe that their success is their own doing, the measure of their merit. And by implication, that those who've been left behind have no one to blame but themselves. This is the harsh side of the meritocratic promise. And the book is about 
really how we've how we've landed in this deeply polarized political condition and how the way we've understood merit and meritocracy has reinforced the divide and then finally how we might begin to climb out of it so uh at the beginning then you were you were talking about the uh, oppressive effect that what you might call a uh, not just the focus on merit but the idea of a meritocracy in principle might have on those uh in a way a corrupting effect at the top end people come to believe their own pr and and at the bottom end uh, because somehow people are being instructed by some elite to believe that they deserve the place that they've been allocated in in some way, if I've understood that. Tell me about, um, that, that, that's, is that what you really think of as meritocratic hubris? It's a, very, yeah. it's a very kind of, it's a wonderful way of describing this problem. Yes, by meritocratic hubris, I mean the tendency of the successful to inhale too deeply of their <laughs> success. <laughs> to forget the luck and good fortune that helped them on their way, and to assume that since they consider that they have risen thanks to their efforts and talents, the tendency to look down on those who haven't, to assume that they must simply lack the effort and hard work and talent to flourish in the new economy. And a big part of this, perhaps we'll get to it, uh, Jesse, is the idea that the way to compete and win in the global economy is to get a four-year university degree. The idea being that the answer to the inequalities that have deepened is simply or primarily individual upward mobility through a university degree. This induces a kind of credentialism among the winners who come to overvalorize the possession of a university degree, and it leads to a kind of demoralization, even humiliation among those who don't have a university degree, who after all, are the majority of our fellow citizens. Nearly two thirds, we easily forget this, nearly two thirds of our fellow citizens in the UK and in the US do not have a four year university degree. So it's folly to have created an economy that sets as a condition of dignified work and a decent life, a four-year university degree. One of the things that's so catching uh, about the book and arresting indeed about it is uh, um, the moment at the beginning where you talk about your own experience with uh, your students at Harvard. And I suppose two things. One is uh, how they uh, all without fail attribute their success in having made it to Harvard to the uh, unaided brilliance and uh, um, uh, laborious hard work uh, that they've uh, put in, uh, and also uh, their utter uh, unawareness that actually, in many ways, uh, American social mobility is uh, thoroughly uh, second-rate by international standards. Because I'll come to the students in a moment, but for for many years in America, we've consoled ourselves with the greater degree of inequality in our society than in many. European societies, for example, saying, here, we don't need to worry much about inequality because we have a mobile society. No one is consigned to the class of his or her birth, unlike those class-ridden societies of Europe, which do worry so much about inequality. 
we are an upwardly mobile society, so we, we don't need to worry about it. And this may actually account for the rather less generous welfare state that the U.S. has by comparison with the U.K. and European social democracies. But this consoling thought no longer, if it ever did, fits the facts on the ground. One's chances of rising one generation to the next are actually less in the United States than they are in a great many European countries and in Canada. The chance of rising from the bottom fifth of the income scale to the top uh, is about, depending on the study, four to eight percent. Even the chance of rising to middle class is less than 50%. So we need another way of contending with the deepening inequalities of recent decades than simply to say, if you go off and get a university degree, then maybe you too will be able to rise. Now, I've not addressed your question, Jesse, about my students. I don't want to seem overly harsh to them. I have no, because in many ways, they are deeply engaged in activities of public service, and good works uh, for their community and for, for the less fortunate. So I don't mean for the moment to suggest that they are, are selfish and unconcerned with the public good. What I do notice about them, which is telling with regard to the question of meritocracy, is given what it takes to compete for entry into these highly selective U.S. colleges and universities, student, young people's entire adolescent years, sometimes earlier, are converted into a stress-strewn gauntlet of meritocratic striving, packaging oneself, competing for grades, engaging in extracurriculars, doing good works in distant lands, all the better to impress in admissions, committee, it's almost impossible, oh, and this much of this superintended by often rather pushy parents who may hire, if they can, private college consultants who are experts at packaging these young people. But there is such a strenuous insistence on effort and striving and hard work that it's almost, uh, it's almost impossible not to emerge from this, believing that winning admission is down to one's own effort and one's own doing. And, and so I'm not so much criticizing my students as sympathizing with the wounds that afflict even the winners, because by the time they arrive, many of them, accomplished and gifted um, are so driven to achieve, so accustomed to pleasing through achievement, their parents, their teachers, the imagined admissions committees, that they find it difficult to step back and explore and reflect and what's worth caring about in what they, they really would lo love to study. So my, my worry is that the credentialism is, is, so, is crowding out 
the love of learning. Yes, I mean, the idea of the free play of the mind that was supposed to be the conception of a liberal arts degree at a university uh, yeah. uh, or of, uh, as it were, a, a, a rounded human being, but rounded by aspiration and interest rather than by uh, one's uh, curriculum vitae or bio is a, is a, is a distant one in this context. Um, uh, and and I, I thought that was a point well made. And, and also, I think the point about the way in which the top universities have simultaneously become so competitive as a result of this obsessive uh, interest that actually the likelihood of people succeeding has massively fallen. And therefore you end up with a kind of epidemic of mental illness on the one hand, and yet at the same time, um, a rather strange uh, mindset, which is, uh, which you do detect actually amongst uh, some of these people, which is, you know, uh, uh, what should I say? Um, a kiss up, kick down. If I, if I think um, this person's got something to teach me or some way of enhancing my credentials, I'll be um, quite uh, dutiful in regard to them. But if I think they're my cognitive inferior, um, I will give them a good kicking. And, and there's a bit of that uh, if, I'm, if, I, if I detect it myself. Let me ask you a question, though, uh, uh, Michael, which is, um, I mean, I take it we're not moving away, and you're not calling for us to move away from uh, merit as a criterion for selection of jobs or public offices or uh, any of the like. Um, so how does that relate to your concern about this obsessive pursuit of merit and the credentials of merit uh, in society? Because you might think there's a tension between those two things. Uh, yes, that's right, Jesse. I'm not saying that we shouldn't uh, hire people for jobs based on merit. If, if I or a loved one goes in for surgery, I want a very well-qualified uh, surgeon to perform it. So that's not the issue. The issue is, well, I think there, there are two aspects of meritocracy that give rise to the dark side, to the harsh ethic of success that polarizes our societies and that uh, contributes to the unraveling of the social bonds that hold us together. One of them is the idea that money, the money people make, is the measure, the true measure of their contribution to the common good. The other is casting a university degree as a necessary condition, not only for success in the economy, but also for social recognition and prestige and honor. I think these are two, two of the unfortunate dimensions of the version of market-driven meritocracy that we have arrived at over the past four decades. And I think we need to uh, ask ourselves the question, including in politics, how to begin to find our way to a more generous politics of the common good. And one way of doing that, it seems to me, is to focus less on equipping the people for meritocratic combat and to focus more on the dignity of work on asking how can we reconfigure the economy so that we more broadly reward but also respect the contributions that people make through the work they do, the families they raise, the communities they serve, whether or not 
they are highly credentialed. These are the ways I think we need to begin to rethink what counts as merit and who deserves what and why. I mean, because there's a difficult problem in a way, isn't there, Michael, which is that if, if you're right, and I think there's an enormous amount of truth in what you're saying, then the idea that any policy as such could remedy the issue, um, uh, it seems to be uh, quite a stretched one. You might imagine a, a process of evolution with a series of different policy measures designed to enfranchise and recognize and to change status differentials and potentially to uh, right. row back a little bit on some of the more egregious reward systems that reinforce this position. But it's hard to imagine any specific policy uh, picking this up. But you do have one really interesting idea, um, which uh, I'd just like to touch on if we can, which I think is uh, fascinating, which is the idea that we might move towards, or at least you scout the possibility of moving towards a, a lottery type admission system for some of the top universities. Now, of course, I love that. I think that's a genius idea. Um, I've called for it in other contexts and uh, uh, myself. And, uh, and one of the reasons why is because it forces the university to focus on, uh, uh, on actually adding to the educational accomplishments of the person mm. when they arrive, because yeah. they don't get to cheat by just choosing, as it were, the cream of the cream right. through the meritocratic crop. Well, yes. So my proposal in this will, I'm sure, get me in, in a good bit of trouble in my neighborhood. <laughs> is to take for for universities that have far more well-qualified applicants than they have places for to run what I call a lottery of the qualified. So for example, Harvard and Stanford, uh, to take examples I know here in the US, receive over 40,000 applicants for uh, each for about uh, 2,000 places. The admissions officers tell us that most of the students who apply could do the work and do it well and contribute to their classroom discussion and the education of their peers. So my suggestion is to take them at their word. Let the admissions committees cull out from the 40,000, let's say, those who could not flourish <clears throat> in the university and could not contribute. How many would be left? Well, I don't know, maybe 30,000 or 25,000 or 32,000, whatever the number. Among those who are qualified, do a lottery to determine uh, admission. Now, this would not dismantle the credentialist prejudices that writ large uh, breed resentment among those who are excluded in our societies. Um, but we should be realistic about that. But it might begin to chip away at least a little at the meritocratic hubris of the winners, to remind them of the role of luck that figures in their admission, even under the existing system. In other words, to highlight what is undeniably the case that one's ability to qualify for a top university or a top job or to make a great deal of money in the economy, this is not down only to the doing of the person, but we are indebted in a great many ways, indebted in ways 
that a single-minded focus on making it on our own obscures. And so the lottery proposal is one modest uh, suggestion <laughs> about how we might begin to shift attitudes in this way. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. But modest in the tradition of Jonathan Swift, uh, Michael. <laughs> Radical. Um, <laughs> Radical. <laughs> um, no, and of course it does raise all kinds of interesting questions about what happens to the alumni preference that's so embedded into universities, and um, perhaps that should be disclosed when people come out of those universities on that on that basis. Uh, I, I think that's um, uh, uh, obviously and potentially quite a radical social uh, marker and a and a kind of signal of 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 intent if any university was sufficiently strong uh, to do that. Um, what about the issue of how you uh, how one engenders a more of a sense of what you might call I think you describe at one point as practical wisdom and civic virtue and, and let me just give you a case for a second so I always thought one of the great strengths about America was that uh, sure a lot of lawyers came out of university uh, 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 but actually there were an enormous number of engineers who came out of university and many of those engineers came out uh, and they not because they'd mastered the theory of engineering, but because they were really good engineers. They had been taught to be good engineers. And there are plenty of colleges uh, uh, around America uh, where that, that has been the case. And some of them have close ties to particular companies and come out of that corporate tradition. Now, of course, when you make everything out of your cognitive elite, and uh, there are then overwhelming financial incentives for people to go into uh, uh, finance, consulting, uh, and the law, all of these meta activities, you are in a way directing your, many of your most talented people away from forms of education where you'd say, actually, we're not interested in this cognitive outcome. We just want a really good engineer. And that can involve a very widespread set of skills from team leadership and communications through to materials, science, and the rest of it. And I, I always thought it was a shame that America hasn't preserve that practical and civic conception of, of what a human being might be coming out of a university. Yes, and so here's this suggests another set of policies which I do suggest as a way of redressing this imbalance, and that is to invest far more than we do in forms of learning that may not be the most prestigious, but that are terribly important to prepare people for the world of work, the majority of people actually. And that includes state colleges, two-year community colleges, which uh, disproportion, disproportionately serve those who come from families who have not been to college or university. And also forms of vocational and technical training and apprenticeships. I think that we should massively invest 
in those areas because we currently uh, don't support them to the degree that we should. Not only to strengthen them economically as avenues of learning for the world of work, but also a way of enlarging their, the honor and prestige we associate with those forms of learning and by application, the forms of work that flow from them. I think we should try to uh, break down the hierarchy of prestige that says in effect, if you don't go to a four-year university, preferably a brand name one, then uh, you're someone who society will, will look down upon or, or not appreciate very fully. I think we should overcome this. And so this really is one way of doing it. I think there, there are other ways of reconfiguring the economy and even the tax code. For example, why should earnings from labor be taxed at a higher rate than earnings from interest and dividends? That should be a public debate, not only from the standpoint of who best can bear the burden of taxation, familiar arguments about redistribution, but also from the standpoint of prompting a debate about the dignity of work and what counts as a valuable contribution to the common good. So the policy proposals I make in the book are not a policy blueprint that could in and of itself solve the problem. They're designed to prompt reflection, a different kind of public debate, focusing on questions not only of jobs and pay, but also questions of meaning, recognition, esteem, dignity, and respect. Yes, one of the things that's so nice about the book is that although it is absolutely a work of analysis and philosophy, and uh, in itself a discursive contribution to lead an argument about the public good, it also doesn't shy away from um, some quite crunchy, not a lot of them, but some quite crunchy uh, policy prescriptions that do precisely what you say. They, they, they energize debate. They get people, they get people uh, moving and thinking. They might agree or they might disagree, but they don't have the option of staying still once they've read the book. And of course, it seems to me that all of this achieves that much extra urgency in the context of a COVID pandemic in which some of these very ill-reputed, uh, low-esteemed jobs have turned out to be completely vital to our well-being, both individually and as a society. Right. And this, this uh, gives me hope that this moment, Jesse, of crisis and pandemic could be a moment of awakening. It could, it could provide an opening for a discussion about uh, who really does make a valuable contribution to the common good. Uh, and and we're, we're noticing, we can't help but notice, those of us who have the luxury of working from home and holding meetings on Zoom, how deeply we depend on the work of workers we often overlook. I'm thinking here not only of those who heroically are looking after COVID uh, patients in hospitals who are doing tremendously important work, but delivery workers, warehouse workers, grocery store clerks, home healthcare workers, lorry drivers. And, and these are not the best paid and most honored workers in our society. And yet now we're calling them key workers 
essential workers. But if that's the case, then apart from clapping for them, what can we do? At least this could be an opening for a political debate. What can we do? How can we reconfigure the economy? The economy of pay, but also the economy of esteem to bring their uh, reward and recognition into better alignment with the importance of the work they do. One of the uh, many incidental pleasures of the book, for those of a more philosophical disposition, is the way in which it shows how uh, quite a wide variety of positions uh, on issues of justice and merit in political philosophy, uh, in fact, take a viewpoint that tacitly reinforces um, some of the meritocracy that Michael is critiquing. And um, I, I'm not sure that's uh, uh, something we should discuss in any detail in the family program, ladies and gentlemen, but it's of great interest to those who want to uh, get into uh, some of the more thorny theoretical issues. And I, I personally greatly enjoyed that. Um, let me just ask one other question, though, um, Michael, which is, uh, if one just thinks about the arc of your own work, uh, uh, you know, significant focus on um, uh, critique of... Uh, prevailing ideas about justice, the just society, John Rawls, some of the work that you did then in formulating your own book on justice, now a, uh, a book on tyranny of merit, your previous one on uh, what you might call uh, um, the, the limits of the marketplace and uh, the uh, commercialization and financialization of the public realm. Uh, are we seeing, is there a kind of implicit architecture to this line of thinking, uh, Michael, and, and should we be looking for a a new theory of contributive justice from you in the years to come? Well, thank you for that question, which, which does kind of prompt me or, or forces me really to articulate the common thread running through, um, which I would like to do in a minute. But the idea of contributive justice, the term you've just used, is one that figures in the new book on the tyranny of merit, where I, I suggest we that we shouldn't focus only on distributive justice. That question arises almost too late because the question of contributive justice prompts us to ask what counts as a valuable contribution to the common good and how should we reward such contributions? We have outsourced our moral judgment in that regard to markets in recent decades we assume that the money people make is the measure of their contribution to the common good. But this is a mistake. It's a mistake philosophically for reasons that I develop in the book, but it's also a mistake politically because it deprives democratic citizens of reasoning and debating and arguing together about the meaning of the common good. How else could we uh, discuss what counts as a contribution worth encouraging, cultivating, nourishing, and rewarding, unless we could arrive at some conception as a society of the common good. Now, the thread, the thread that you generously invited me to trace back through my early writings, I think is this. There is a powerful uh, picture of freedom that animates the version of, of liberalism that I uh, criticized early on, that also figures in the embrace of markets uh, that I addressed in What Money Can't Buy, the, the, the kind of market faith, I mean, beyond the practical 
benefits of markets, but the deep market faith. And it also figures in meritocracy, in the picture of the person, uh, of freedom, is connected with a picture of the person along the following lines. It's the idea, and think about the discussion we've just had now about success. My success being my own doing. I've made it on my own. And therefore, I deserve the benefits that flow from the exercise of my efforts and talents. What animates this idea is a certain conception of freedom, that if chances are truly equal, if I'm not held back by disadvantages of race or class or ethnicity or gender, then, then I can think of myself as self-making, as self-made, as a kind of master of my fate. That's the deep appeal of the meritocratic promise. My success is my own doing, the product of my own effort and talents. I've made myself, I've made my success, and that's why I deserve the benefits that flow from it. This is an appealing idea of human agency. And, and yet, it's flawed. And that's been the argument through the various books that, that you've uh, that you brought to mind, Jesse. It's flawed because it assumes that to be a human agent, to exercise freedom, is something we can do as a matter of self-mastery and self-creation. And, and I argue instead, and have argued throughout in these various contexts, that we need instead to understand freedom as a kind of civic freedom that recognize our indebtedness and our embeddedness in the communities that make our success possible and that give meaning to our lives and that, for that matter, hold societies together. Michael, thank you so much. What an absolutely marvelous way to end. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed that. Uh, I have thought uh, it was a wonderful moment uh, and I would encourage you all to load up on uh, Michael's new book, The Tyranny of Merit, uh, and uh, enjoy its riches. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you, Michael Sandell. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.